In the 1953 black and white movie, Martin Luther, I suppose you can figure out who that was about. Not Martin Luther King Jr., but the reformer Martin Luther. Uh, You get the whole kind of biography of Martin Luther, and you see him as a monk in the monastery. That's kind of how he started out. Actually, I think he started out as a lawyer, but, uh, but he got hit by lightning or almost and became a monk. Anyway... You, there's, this, uh, there's this scene that depicts Martin Luther's struggle with his own spiritual performance. He sees himself as lacking. He doesn't have the assurance that he is saved. He doesn't know that he's going to, if he die, even though he's a monk, he, you know, you think what, that you would have this thought that if you're a priest or a monk or a nun, you're straight, you know, going straight to heaven, but he didn't feel that way at all. And so he would spend long hours in prayer and fasting, and he would even whip himself. Like he had a little little thing of cords there that he could that he could punish his body with, and he thought that he would get closer to God that way, but it, it wasn't working for him. And in this 1953 movie, I remember there's this scene, the monks are going off to prayer, there's that, the bell is clanging, and they're heading down the hallway, and Martin Luther's mentor, a guy named Johann von Staupitz, um, he... Uh, he turns back and he heads toward Martin Luther's room because Martin Luther, he's not with them. And he goes in the room and there's Martin Luther on the floor. He's passed out from praying all night long, fasting. And next to his hand is the whip on the floor that he's been beating himself with. And Staupitz says to him, Brother Martin, you can't help your soul by punishing your body. Luther's burden was thinking that he had to do something to earn his salvation, to make himself worthy that he might be accepted by God. And it's only later when Martin Luther starts working on the book of Romans, working through it uh, to make commentary on the book of Romans, that he has that breakthrough where he understands salvation is by grace through faith. Paul writes to the Colossians. The Colossians are being troubled by a group of people. that I don't know that they were exactly teaching that you could save yourself by your works, but they were certainly engaged in some kind of a, just a completely erroneous idea that if they did certain things and if they treated their body harshly, if they followed certain ascetic practices of, of very similar to what Martin Luther was doing, that if, that if they did these things, that they would have a, a higher, fuller Christianity than the mere mortals around them. And they were trying to instill that in the other uh, Colossian believers. But what Paul wants them to see, what Paul's counter to this false teaching, is not to meticulously take apart the false teaching. It's to hold forth Christ to them that they might see Christ, that they might see Christ as the substance. And that's what we're going to see throughout the book of Colossians. We've seen it up till now. We'll keep, we'll keep seeing this, that Paul is holding forth Christ to them. And today's, yeah, this, this is very, very central to, de, to, de, to today's uh, four verses. We're looking at this very dense passage, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Here's my big idea. You've already seen it. It's in your bulletin. But that is free yourself from your burden of performance by focusing on the worth of Christ. Last time we ended with 114. Obviously, we're picking up in 15, I guess. But you you remember there that we had been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of the Son, the Son of God, Jesus. 
And from there, Paul spins out and begins to just portray to us who Christ is. And this is huge. Like, uh, the theological term for this is Christology, meaning the teaching concerning who Christ is. And this is big. This, this is enormous. Paul unpacks Christ and how worthy he is. When we get to verse seven, uh, 18, I'm sorry, verse 18 kind of almost looks back over what he's taught, that he talks about the preeminence of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. So that's what we're going to look at today. First of all, we see that he is the image of the invisible God. Let that just sink in for a moment. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, in a, in a lesser way, in a different sort of way, it was said of Adam and of mankind that, that we were made in God's image. <laughs> However, with the fall into sin, that, that image of God got very distorted in us, to say the least. But with Christ, with the Son of God, it says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that is a big start, isn't it? That's like a thunderbolt coming out of the blue here. Uh, Unless you think it's unusual, like, oh, well, maybe this is just some weird little verse taken out of context, you know, that doesn't mean what it seems to be saying. Let me just just put your mind at ease there. Uh, John 1.18 says that no one has seen God, but the but that the one at the Father's side has made him known. We know that he is the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All that is said of him in in John's Gospel, chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 4, which is one of my absolute favorite passages. I'm going to quote it at length later, but it says in chapter 4 that Christ is the image of God. Philippians chapter 2, Christ was in the form of God. God. Hebrews chapter 1 describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus, in John's gospel, says to Philip that he, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So the invisible God becomes visible to us in the person of Christ, in Jesus Christ, the perfect uh, God-man. He has always been, from before his incarnation, he was the in very image and form God. In his incarnation, he was the God-man. He was the full imprint of his nature, and he continues to be so. Do we need to have ecstatic experiences? When people come along and tell you you have to have this sort of visionary experience or this sort of thing, that there's this higher life Christianity, that if you just do these certain things and follow our certain practices, then you can have something much bigger and a, and a much bigger view of God by just going through and doing these certain things. Do we need that? And the answer is no. No, we have Christ. We have him by the gospel through the word of God. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We are in Christ and Christ is in us and he is the substance. He is the totality. He is the very image of God himself. So keep Christ the substance. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Let me give you a little bit of role play here. So imagine you get a knock at the door and you go and it's your cult du jour of the day. You know, hi, I'm, I'm Spuds. I'm from uh, church down the road. We call it the Church of the Heavenly Door. And uh, yeah, I had a really cool experience. You know, I, I just recently came and got involved with him. And I, I've been having these visions of, I've been seeing angels and, and I've been walking through the heavenly temple. And if you will come to our church 
and you'll just, you know, sit under our teaching for a while. We can take you through all this and show you how you can do the very same sort of thing. Well, how does that sound? All right, okay, let's just practice this with me. Um, no thanks. <laughs> no thanks. Well, why? Don't you want to have a higher experience of God? We should all want a higher experience of God. You say, no, thank you. I have Christ. I have Christ. I have him. He lives in me. I live in him. He, I, 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 I need nothing more. I need nothing more. And, and in due course, I will see him. Then faith will become sight. But I don't, I don't need your visions. Thank you very much. By the way, if someone says to you uh, that this could be another knock at the door, but if certain people come to you and they take you to Colossians to prove their twisted theology and they say, look at this, it says Jesus is the firstborn of creation. So that means Jesus is part of creation, which means there was a time when Jesus didn't exist and then he got created. He just happens to be the firstborn of creation. That's not what it's saying. Okay, and I'm going to explain that as we go along, but that's not, not at all what it's saying. In fact, he is over all creation. He is over all creation. Firstborn has the meaning of that which is highest in rank. So just you can write down to go back and look at this later, but Psalm 89.27 uses this term referring to David, that, that God would appoint David as the firstborn, as, the, as, the, as this high king, or this great king, meaning highest or preeminent in rank. In verse 18, it, it pushes toward that, that conclusion that in everything he might be preeminent. That's what firstborn means in this context. It can mean firstborn, but it can also mean highest in rank. Also, that little word of, will you bear with me if I give you just a tiny little bit of grammar, and then you can promptly forget it. Um, but yeah, in the Greek, right, a lot of times when you see the word of in English, it's translating the genitive case of, of the Greek. And, uh, and there are many, many different ways of translating that so when it says firstborn of creation you might be tempted to translate that you ready as a partitive genitive all right now you can forget that but anyway the part it, it kind of means what it sounds like the partitive genitive means that it's expressing that the thing is a part of that other thing of creation so that would mean that jesus was a part of those things which are created but that's not how we should translate it instead it would be an objective Genitive, which would be to say that Jesus is supreme, highest in rank over, over all creation. And Paul then fills it out, uh, how Jesus is over all creation, how he is preeminent. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So, all things were created by him. Who created all things? Well, when you think about Genesis, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So, so God is the one who created all things. Yet, it is said of the Son the very same, that it is by him that all things exist. Consider John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
Go back to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. But in these days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Are you, are you seeing the pattern there? This is not a one-off here in Colossians. This is the uniform teaching of the New Testament that all things were made through the Son. End of story. Nothing that has been made, nothing was made without him. And if all things were made by him, then he can't be the firstborn of creation in, that, in the sense of him being part of the creation, can he? It, it, he has brought them into being. He is superior to all these things. It's not that complicated. It really isn't, but I, I just want you to take this in. I hope you've paid just enough attention at least that if somebody took you here and tried to prove something false, that you would be able to stand up under that. And if nothing else, I don't expect you to remember the partitive versus the objective genitive, but if you just take them and go, well, wait a second, if it is by and through and for Christ that all things are created, he himself is not part of that which he created. Yes? So, how much of all things did Jesus create? Verse 16 tells us that all things in heaven and earth were made by him. How much of the universe is all things in heaven and earth? It's all. It's absolutely all. The Bible uses uh, various kinds of figures of speech, which is common to English as it was common to uh, biblical language at the time. One of those figures of speech is something we call a merism. You can forget this too, but if you want to, you can write it down. Merism. A merism is when you try to express the totality of a thing by two of its parts. And we do that. Like if I went to the hospital, um, by the way, I'm, I'm perfectly fit, but uh, if, if I did and, and I came back and you said, well, what kind of test did they run? Oh, and I said to you, well, they checked me out from stem to stern, right? That'd be kind of a merism. What does that mean? It also means that I'm a ship, I guess. Uh, but you know, it, it's, it's expressing the totality of you from, by, by two parts of, of, a, of a sailing ship. And so what's the great merism in the Bible it's Genesis 1-1, which we talked about earlier. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That doesn't just mean earth, the planet, and the sky around the earth. That is a merism, a figure of speech to mean the entirety of, the, of, of all that's been created, of the whole universe. He called it into existence out of nothing. He spoke it into being. And Jesus here in Colossians is said to be the one by whom all things were created in heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven, the earth, all things made in heaven and earth by the Son. Jesus is the one by whom quarks, you know quarks, the subatomic particle, yeah, I, that's, I know the word. That's all I know. Trust me. So, so from quarks to quasars, from, from neutrinos to neutron stars, everything, all things were made by him. And it, and it defines it further. Things visible and invisible. Things visible and invisible. I don't think Paul is thinking here of things that are invisible to the naked eye, like would, where you need a microscope or something. I think what he's saying is he's talking about the natural universe, the material universe as it is from, you know, everything you can see from under a microscope to a telescope and beyond, all things and all points in between of the material universe. But it is also those things which are spiritual in nature. 
Everything that it has any existence, whether it be natural or supernatural, was made by and through the Son. All powers, it says, all powers. And he lists the powers, all these spiritual powers. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. How many feel like you've got a good grasp of those four? You know what they are. You can define it all really neatly. Um, among Jewish groups of Paul's day, and probably true for this, this, uh, this heretical group that was, that was engaged in this false teaching, there were very highly developed ideas of like the legions of angels, like a typology, a taxonomy of, you know, here's where the archangels come and all the different angels. Then you got the demonic realm, and here's how all of that works out. And they had it all kind of figured out. And, and, and that was part of what the false teachers were, were promulgating. May I say, if you hear people say to you, you need to, oh, you need to get in this power encounter, and if you're going to get in this power encounter, you really have to understand all of the demonic legions and what you're really up against and what you're doing. And if you ever come up across people like that, I say, run the other way. Run the other way. You say, but wait, Paul... Paul gives us a distinct list. Clearly, Paul really cares about drilling down and explaining the different kinds of legions and regions and powers and principalities and all those things, doesn't he? Uh, no. <laughs> In short, no, because you have to understand how, how Paul's rattling off this list. Paul's kind of doing a whatever. Paul's doing sort of a, a, a whatever here. If you go over to the book of Ephesians, he gives a similar list, but it's not the same list. It's some of the same words, but it's in a different order, and he uses other words for, to replace other words. And, and, and so what this is really like, but Paul's basically saying, I don't care. He's like, whatever, what, if there be, whether there be, whatever, if it's this, it's, it's kind of like if you said to me, what do you know about classical music? And I go, I don't know, you know, I don't care much for yeah, Bach. Beethoven, Mozart, whatever, right? It's like, I'm not really teaching you all there is to know about classical music by saying that. I'm being rather dismissive at that point. I'm saying if it's got a name, sure. Classical music, I'm into it, I'm not into it, whatever the case may be. I'm, I'm, just, throwing, I'm just rattling off a little something to, to speak about it. He's saying, I don't care how you categorize Satan's minions or angelic powers They are all under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were created by him, through him, and for him. And that's all you really need to know. These false teachers want you to get hung up. They want to boast about your knowledge of the spiritual realm. Paul's like, you know, Lord of the Rings, orcs, non-orcs, hobbits, whatever. That's that's more or less what they're, they're created. You know, parents, I think this would be really something that you should take to heart for teaching your children. When I was growing up, I was raised in a, a haunted house, um, <laughs> reputed to be haunted house. The people that bought it from my family afterwards said, oh yeah, def- definitely haunted. And I always kind of felt like it was growing up as a kid. I was, a, I was afraid. I was afraid of things that went bump in the night. And when I was afraid, my, my, the answer that my parents had was, grow up. <laughs> be a man. Stop being a snivelly little baby, you know, whatever the case. That was kind of their, their answer, and, oh, it's not real. There's nothing to worry about. It's, that was not that comforting to me as a kid, for them just to say, oh, there's nothing to worry about. Like, I think there are things I could worry about. 
How much better is it for you as a parent to come alongside your child and say, I understand, there are things that frighten us. And, uh, and here's the beautiful thing. I'm going to pray with you, all right? But here's the thing you need to know. There is nothing in heaven or earth, visible or invisible. I don't care if, if vampires are real, if, and I don't think they are, but if they were, they're created. Christ is the creator. Christ is over all these things. His power is greater than all those things. So we're just, we're going to trust him. We're going to trust him. That's who Jesus Christ is. We, we need not fear, and we need not have an unhealthy interest in ferreting out some encyclopedic knowledge of the dark realm. We look to Christ instead. One last thing to say here under this second part Uh, this point of Jesus being over all things, and it's in verse 17. So look there at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yeah, he's before them because in all things, all things hold together in him, which is another way of saying, uh, a more familiar way of phrasing it, is he sustains them. God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. So God didn't just make the universe like a clock, wind it up and say, okay, universe, get by on your own. God continues to sustain it. The Lord continues that work. Look at what uh, it says in the book of Hebrews. He, this is Christ now, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he, which is exactly what Colossians says, right? And... He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is big, isn't it? I mean, when you really start to just drill down on this and look at this, this is huge. So so the whole universe exists through Christ, by Christ. He is is engaged as the agency of creation, but not just creation. These things, they owe their continued existence to the idea that he sustains them. He upholds them. He, he holds all things together. All this we can say of the second person of the Trinity, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We get so caught up. I'm, I'm bringing this just down to a very personal level. We get so caught up in trying to wring out some feeling, some, some sense of our own worth, to be able to look at our lives and say that, you know, that, that, that we've achieved, that we've succeeded, that we've, that we've managed to make something praiseworthy out of ourself. And there are very few that ever really accomplish that. And if they do accomplish it in one small area or, or a couple areas where they can say, well, I'm really good at this, or yeah, I can really whistle, or whatever it might be, you know, it's usually pretty shallow at the end of the day. Think about somebody like Tiger Woods. Like, I could only dream of ever hitting one golf shot like Tiger Woods does routinely. Do you notice how happy Tiger Woods seems to be all the time? Like, every time you see him, he's just, just a bundle of joy. Not really. No. It, it's like, the thing is, you can work so hard, you can try so hard to succeed, to make something of yourself, to, to count, to, to, just that your existence would matter, that you would be worthy of existence. And the harder we try, the less able we are able to actually pull that off. 
And do you know why that is? It's because we are wired to worship that which is truly great. And the problem is in our lives, we try to be that something truly great that we can worship, and that will always crash and burn. You're either going to fail at it, just straight out fail, and that doesn't leave you feeling very good, or you kind of half succeed, and then whatever you achieve, you realize it wasn't enough. And what is, what is Paul trying to show us? He's trying to show us who Christ is, the preeminence of Christ through whom everything is created, by which everything is sustained. And if we get a hold of that, if we take hold of Christ, the substance, then the rest just falls into place where it needs to be. If God gives us a certain level of greatness in, in some area, well then, wonderful, but that's not what we're after. We're after Christ, and everything else is just grace and mercy. Lastly, he is over the church. He is over the church, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he's the head over the church. I bet you thought the elders were the head of the church, right? Because you have so much respect for us as elders and pastors, and you just think we hung the moon. No? Not so much? Okay. That might have been exaggerated now that I think about it. No, no, because you, you know, you know the truth. The truth is that, that elders and pastors are, are, are sheep as well as shepherds. They're under shepherds at best, but they're also sheep. And yeah, we, 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 yeah, we're not Christ. We're not Christ. He is the head. Christ is the head of the church. And when you use that term, kephale, head, in, uh, in the, um, that's the Greek, kephale, uh, there's a lot of debate, by the way, in the church over time. People have argued over this because of the idea of the man being the head over the woman and what does that mean? And there's kind of two competing ideas, both of which are actually valid uh, in the Scripture. On the one hand, it represents authority, which clearly in this passage, in this context, there's very much the idea of Christ being preeminent being firstborn, being of highest rank, being in authority. So he's the head in that sense. But head also means source. So you think of the headwaters of the Mississippi. What is that? Well, it's a bunch of little streams coming together somewhere up in Minnesota, and that's the, those are the headwaters. So those are the source. The head is seen as the source, the head of the body that supplies the body. What Paul is saying here is both, I think. Because both of those contexts fit. He's saying on the one hand, Christ is head of the church, that he is the authority. It's him, not, no, no earthly authority. It is, it is Christ. But he's also saying that Christ is, is the author. He's the source. The cool thing here that I see that I think is really interesting is what we find out is that, that Christ was the head, is the head over the old creation, so heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, the original creation, which was tainted by sin. And then it's showing us that not only is, that, is he head over the, the, the original creation, but he's head over the new creation. Because the church is that, is that place, that, that, that place where the new creation breaks into the old creation. We are not yet all that we will be, but already in Christ, we are part of the new work of God, that new creation, and he is the source, and he is the head over all that. 
So what Paul has pressed into four short verses is the glorious truth of the identity of Jesus Christ in whom we have all things. When it comes to the old creation, yeah, preeminent, above all those things because by him and through him all those things came into existence. He is also head over the church. Who is like him? Who is like him? Who, you? Me? No. There's no one. Whom, to whom shall we compare the Lord Jesus Christ? We don't even begin to compete with him. He has loved us. He has given birth to us. He's given birth to his church. He has purchased us, redeemed us, delivered us. We belong to him. What do we have to do to be worthy? Be in Christ, right? What more can we do? But, but look to him. Do we have to climb tall mountains? Do we have to swim to the bottom of deep oceans? Do we have to fast and mistreat our body the way certain people want to, you know, for, and I'm not saying fasting is, a, not, is a, bad as a discipline, but I'm saying is that what we have to do to make ourselves worthy in the eyes of the Lord? No, we take hold of Christ. I've been thinking a lot lately about the tragedy of suicide that has been so, yeah, so wretched in our community and, and, and taken so many in, in, since the beginning of the year. There's been a huge number. I've had a couple of you who work in different kinds of areas come to me and talk to me about that. And uh, what, do you, what do you make of it? What are, what are we to make of it? And some people would say, you know, what we need to really do is we really need to focus on the dark, you know, the dominion of darkness. And we need to get more knowledgeable about, you know, Satan and about, well, how do we take on in spiritual warfare, take on the devil? Because clearly it's the devil's work. And, and I'm not questioning that the devil's not behind a lot of what, what we see, you know, with people taking their lives. But, but when you look at this passage, you know what I think? people really need? They need a view of Jesus. They need the gospel. They, need, they need, need to see Jesus, the head of the church. Jesus, the one who created all things. They need to see his worth. And what they really need freed, what they really need to be freed from is the burden of justifying their own self-existence. Because I think in many cases, and I'm not, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a Therapist, but I think in many of these cases, it, it's that lie of the world, that lie of the devil, that they think they have to prove their worth, and at some point, they start looking at their life thinking, you know what, I can't justify my continued existence on this planet. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I haven't accomplished anything. Why should I go on existing? And the answer to that is not to know about the devil. It's to know about Jesus. And to be able to hold Jesus in front of them and say, look to him. Look to his worth. He's, he's preeminent. He's the firstborn. He's over all creation. He created all things. It's through him that it's been made for him, through him, to him. And Christian, you know this. I know you know it, but let's, let's get a hold of it. Let's, let's get, if you start to feel yourself getting all anxious in your own performance and, and works and, and you feel like you're on that gerbil wheel, how many ever, have ever felt that way? A couple of you still occasionally, once in a while you feel that, and you're like, oh, oh, and, and, what, and, and if you really boil it down, a lot of times, what are you doing? 
You're anxious because you, ah, I just got to make something happen. I got I to show my worth. I got to prove my worth. I got to prove to me that I'm, you're not worthy of worship. You never will be. Just get rid of that. Nobody wants to ever worship you. You don't want to worship you. Your, your, your heart is wired to worship that which is infinitely worthy, and his name is Jesus. And you know that. If you don't know him today, I hope that you do come to know him. I hope that you get a glimpse of Christ in this message, that, that your eye is a little bit open to see his worth. Here, I told you earlier I was going to come back to this, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. This is speaking about unbelievers. It says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Awake, O sleeper, the Bible says. Awake. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Look to Jesus. See him. See his worth. See his preeminence. See what he has done. He came into this world and died on the cross for sinners, sinners like you. And if you repent and you turn, if you look to Christ, putting your, your faith, your trust, your belief in him, he will save you. And he'll save you from yourself. He'll save you from that, that, that burden, that, that performance burden that, where you have to prove your worth. You can just lay that all down and take hold of him and you'll find joy. Let's pray. Father, as, you, as your children today, I pray that, that we have uh, gotten a, a deeper or renewed reminder of who Christ is and what he means to us. Lord, let us, let us lay aside that, that sense that we have to make ourselves worthy of worship. We know we'll never meet that demand. Instead, Lord, help us to see Jesus today and worship him just worship him in purity and in truth that we might see him as he is, the author, the finisher of our faith, and that seeing him, Lord, we might be energized to love you more, to serve you more readily, to give of ourselves, not for our sake, but, but for the kingdom. We pray today that your kingdom might continue to expand and grow in this world, Lord, that your new creation might manifest itself more and more in this time of the old creation that, that Christ might be preached and that he might be believed upon and that you might receive all the glory. We ask it in his name. Amen.